Will you please turn with me in your Bibles this evening to the second chapter of the Apostle Paul's Epistle to the Romans, where we are going to be looking this evening just at verses 1 through 3. Romans chapter 2, 1 through 3, and you can find that passage on page 1105 in your pew Bibles. I'm going to be spending the next three tonight and two more Sunday evenings talking with you about sin and the necessity of salvation. And in order for us to do that, we are going to be looking together at the opening of this second chapter of this letter written to the Romans. And Before we dig in, allow me to just briefly summarize what's going on here in this letter leading up to this point at the beginning of chapter 2. I remind you that we are here in the middle of Paul's first rather rather lengthy discourse that takes place in this letter. It begins in chapter 1 and it runs clear through to the end of chapter 3. Paul, of course, opens this letter with the grand subject of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And even in this very introductory statement to the churches gathered in Rome, we see that the gospel itself is going to be front and center in the Apostle's message. Paul cannot keep himself from just bursting out in praise and appreciation for the good news of Jesus Christ. And he tells us why as he sets out the theme for the letter in verses 16 and 17 of chapter 1. And perhaps you remember them. It's there that Paul makes what is now a very well-known statement. And that is this. That the gospel itself is the very power of God unto salvation. And that in it, the righteousness of God is revealed to the Jew and the Gentile alike. When we fully understand that fact, we can begin to wrap our minds around the Apostle Paul's excitement over this particular truth. The truth that so envelops the life of the one who embraces Jesus Christ and his perfection, his righteousness, by God-given faith. Paul knows that the good news of who Jesus is and what he did in fact accomplish cannot possibly be good news unless we first fully understand the context that makes it as much. In other words... Paul knows that in order to truly see the good in the good news, even to the point where the people of God will be transformed by it and live in undying gratitude because of it, we must first understand and even embrace what is essentially the bad news. And that is what Paul gives for the rest of the first chapter. He gives to us in chapter 1 the bad news. That Almighty God has indicted us, not just as individuals, but the entirety of mankind, all of whom are fallen in Adam, and who because of that fall stand in desperate need of the grace of God, which is revealed in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And Paul begins his exposition by showing that indeed the heart of man is desperately wicked. And by its fallen nature, it is prone by nature towards idolatry. 
Though we are made in the image of the God who is, the God who reigns, because of it we know God, we know that we ought to worship Him, we ought to express our gratitude towards Him daily. The truth is, beloved, we do not always do it. Depravity exists. Sin exists. It is in us, and indeed we see it all around us. It is a fact that does not need to be taken on faith. It's something that we can prove empirically. We can see it in our own flesh. And we can see it in mankind in general. And so Paul points his hearers to the pagan society that they were a part of. And he says, look. Look at your culture. Look at your society and see not only the foolishness of idolatry, but see even the wrath of God against sin as he gives man over to his own thoughts. Man suppresses the truth of God and God gives him what he most desires. And as a result of that, Paul can point to several things specifically as proof. He said, God gives them over to their impure desires. Desires that are rooted not in the truth of God's word. Desires that flow directly from the fallen fallen heart of man. And in a sense, beloved, we've talked about it before, but this is God's wrath against sin. He gives us sin for sin. It's a judgment. And Paul says that God will give us over to vile passions. Paul points to the homosexuality that was so pervasive in the Roman culture. And he says, look at the way that men and women alike have pursued what is against nature, against the created order given by God. They have exchanged the natural use of the other and they burn in their passions for one another. Man's heart and his mind becomes darkened. And so he recreates God in his own image. And in so doing, he begins to reason against nature, against God's design. And he continues the rapid descent into utter foolishness, where he calls what is bad good and what is good bad. It is but a manifestation of God's displeasure And his wrath against the idolatrous heart of man. The pagans have denied God and you can see the result of their denial as the truth, the the result of their denial of the truth as God gives them over. And of course it's bad news. Paul knows that this is but one sin in a sea of sin. And lest anyone feel vindicated that they are somehow above accusation, Paul then lists out these 21 other sins in verses 28 through 32 of chapter 1. All equally pervasive in a culture that has denied God, and which also points to the wrath of God being poured out against idolatry. And though it is certainly not a comprehensive list, beloved, if you glance at those verses, I'm sure we can all relate and find remnants of most of these sins in our own flesh. Again, 
The point is that apart from the grace of God revealed in the person and work of Jesus Christ, all of these things make up man's identity. These are what we are apart from the grace of God. And we are condemned because of it. However, up until this point, Paul's focus has been upon the obvious foolishness of man witnessed in a culture that openly does these things and even encourages others to do them. He's speaking, of course, of the pagans. Though, being sinful ourselves, we can easily see our own failures here, can't we? However, in chapter 2, which we'll be looking at here in a moment, Paul switches gears a bit. And he does it in order to reiterate that it is indeed all men who stand in the need of God's grace offered in the gospel. And as he does, he moves on from the obvious outward sin of the pagan and he sets his sights upon not simply the outward behaviors, but the hearts of men even the hearts of the so-called godly ones. Those who know better than to do these things outwardly, but they do them inwardly. And Beloved, once again, I am certain that you will see that Paul has included all men in this accusation as he begins to tear down the idea, the very notion that there can even be outward morality that is worthy of salvation apart from the gospel that he himself is so desperate to preach. So let us now begin our look together at chapter 2 of Paul's letter to the Romans, and I'd like you to follow along as I read chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Hear now the word of our Lord. Paul says, Therefore, you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge. For in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. But we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. And do you think this, O man, you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, again, we're grateful for the opportunity to come to your word this evening. We ask that you would clear our minds of the many things that distract us in this life and that we would be able to give our full attention to your word, that we might hear these things through the power of your spirit and be transformed by them for your glory. And we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. You can almost imagine what it, would have been, what it would have been like to have been in that first gathering of saints that sat down together to listen to the contents of this letter being read in their presence. Have you ever thought about that? Beloved, I'm not saying it tritely or even in a way that I, is, is somehow overstated. I know that we can imagine it because in one sense it's what we ourselves are doing. Though, of course, under very different circumstances, we have most likely heard it before, and so we know where Paul's going with all of this. 
You can imagine the nods of approval around the room as the Apostle Paul listed out these horrific, graphic sins of mankind which were so prevalent in the pagan society that they were a part of. Nods seeming to indicate wholehearted agreement with the beloved Apostle as he described such blatant wickedness and called things sin which so clearly were. Things which were not to be found outwardly amongst any so bold as to claim a legitimate place amid God's people. You can even imagine the way people's minds would have immediately begun to work, trying to determine what would be the best course to eradicate such unseemly behavior in the society that they were living in. They could gather brave protesters. They could hold signs denouncing external behavior that was so obviously wicked. You can see smiles beginning to spread across pious-looking faces as they thought about their individual plans. and Which would be the most effective? Which would bring the highest level of condemnation? Which would bring the most satisfaction to the heart of God? As he would undoubtedly be nothing less than pleased with such concerted efforts in denouncing unrighteousness. And then the Apostle Paul changes course. And the sights of his condemnation of sin canon turn and light upon the so-called righteous ones sitting in that very room. Can you imagine? It's almost shocking what he does here, and undoubtedly, it would have had its intended effect upon his hearers. And it should have the the same effect upon us. All through chapter 1, Paul uses pronouns which point us away from self. He uses words like they and them and those. And then he changes it up here. And he says... Therefore, you are inexcusable, O man. Whoever you are who judge. From whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. Can you imagine how the tone and the mood in that room might have just changed in that moment? Paul changes to pointing away from them and towards the pagan society they were a part of. And then he brings the charge against mankind home and he points the finger right back at them. And really they should have seen it coming. Even if they were those for whom the sin of homosexuality in particular seemed to hold no temptation. As Paul moved into that list of other manifestations of sin... It would have been very difficult to believe that anyone would still feel good about their own place in this charge. Who of us could listen to that list being read and not see some room for conviction in it? Look at it in verses 28. And they, even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them, gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting 
being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful. Who knowing the righteous judgment of God that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. He changes gears, doesn't he? And he makes a very important point about sin and the wrath of God against it. Beloved, remember what Paul is doing here. Many people are surprised and even somewhat confused by what he does here. You will remember that when we see that word, therefore, it's normally pointing us back to what has already been said and making application from it. And so many see this, therefore, in the changing of the people of whom Paul is addressing, going from pointing to those who are outside of them to those who are on the inside. And they think Paul is stating the therefore, For what is to follow rather than for what is behind. I think he's doing both. Remember, Paul's whole point here is that God's wrath is poured out and manifested in sin itself being so pervasive in society. And those who fall under that condemnation are not just those who are openly in rebellion against God. But in fact, all of mankind apart from the grace of God in Jesus Christ, is in that position. Everyone is included in this indictment that Paul is so laboring to lay before those who have ears to hear it. Everyone. And the point here is that in terms of the bad news, it's bad news for every human being born into this world, fallen, and their father Adam. The only one excluded here is Jesus Christ himself, in whom alone no sin could be found. During this time, people tended to think of two people groups. There were Jews and there were Gentiles. Those who were God's chosen people who enjoyed his covenant blessings and the rich heritage of the people of God and then, of course, all of those pagan nations. But Paul's point is that the two groups are defined a little bit differently than that. There are those who are not covered by the grace of God through the person and work of Jesus Christ, those who reject it. And there are those who are living under the just condemnation of Almighty God because of their sin. The only thing that separates these two groups is Jesus. And so Paul is concerned here to show all people that sin is far more all-encompassing than just those external wicked behaviors that are so easy to see and judge going on all around us. That's the first thing I want to point out to you here. God's judgment is against even outward morality that stands apart from the grace of God in Jesus Christ. He's not simply indicting the outwardly immoral here, but also those who are outwardly moral while remaining inwardly sinful. 
trusting in something other than the finished work of Jesus Christ on their behalf for righteousness. Morality, apart from Jesus and His saving work, is still drenched in and certainly bears the stain of man's sin. He's looking to the religious folks here with this charge. He's gone from pointing to the pagans to pointing to the supposed people of God, and he says, you too are guilty. And you have no excuse. Even the pagans have no excuse because they actually do know the God in whose image they have been made, the God who reigns, the God that they know they ought to be worshiping, but they've suppressed that truth and unrighteousness. You too have even more revelation than they, namely the law of Almighty God. You have His word and His prophets, and yet you too suppress the truth and try to find your peace in blind morality. God's judgment is on the openly immoral and it is on the openly moral who finds solace in anything that is not the gospel. It's sobering, isn't it? And the charge here, beloved, is one we ought to be familiar with. Quite simply stated, the charge is hypocrisy. It's the same charge that Jesus leveled again and again with so much vehemence against the Pharisees and the other religious leaders of his day. The people who believed in a high, very moral, good-looking standard of living. They rightly think that God is concerned with behavior, but they wrongly think that he is not concerned with the heart from which all behavior flows. They clearly see the sin of others, and they wrongly miss the corruption of their own hearts, which is not fixed, not settled by mere empty morality apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ. Righteousness in the eyes of God is not measured by doing better than your neighbor in behavior. It is measured only by the perfect standard of the law of God. And by that standard, all men are found wanting when measured. All except Christ, who alone kept the law perfectly on our behalf. Now I'm reminded of the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector here. You remember that parable? We've talked about it before. The Pharisee sort of struts towards the temple to worship, feeling not only as if he deserves to be there, but that God really ought to be pleased to have him. And he makes his way in his arrogance and in his pride towards the temple, all the while praising himself. Praising his self-imposed standard of synthetic righteousness. He measures himself not according to the spirit of the law, but according to the poor examples that surround him. And he says, thank you, oh God, thank you that I'm not like all of these weak people who are pathetic and wretched, but I actually exemplify good behavior. And then, of course, you have the tax collector, the known sinner, 
The one who has no misgivings about his deserving to be in the presence of God. And he makes his way to the temple with his eyes to the ground. He cannot even look up. But instead, in his tears, he beats his breast. And through those tears, he cries out to God, God, have mercy upon me, a sinner. He left the temple justified and truly grateful to God. The Pharisee left with only his own praises upon his lips. You understand, beloved, that's the point that Paul is driving home here. Sin is a much bigger problem than just what we do. Have you ever thought about that? It is actually who we are apart from the grace of God in the gospel. We are sin. Do you understand that? It's really so easy to see sin in others, isn't it? But Paul is calling on all men here to see that it dwells and rules in their own hearts, regardless of the way that they are perceived by men. I've said it many times from this pulpit, beloved, the law of God is not a window into your neighbor's soul until it has been a mirror into your own. Paul is addressing the respectable sinners now. And he's telling them that the primary difference between others and them is that they simply know enough to wear a mask to cover their own hideous hearts. You clearly see their sin and condemn it, and in condemning it in them and ignoring it in your own heart, you are at best, according to Paul, a masked pagan, a hater of God. You know enough to be ashamed of your thoughts. You know enough to be embarrassed by your sinful nature, but rather than taking it to the cross of Jesus Christ in humility, you found another way. You hide behind a pretty morality. You painstakingly put on your makeup every day so that you can hide who you really are. You're even foolish and narcissistic enough to actually start believing that the truth is you're really not that bad. And so you stick to finding sin in others. Sin that you don't see outwardly in your own behavior and you never get to your own desperate need for Jesus. Beloved, Christianity is far greater than just conforming to a set of rigid standards. It is resting in the finished work of Jesus Christ for you, which is the only thing that will conform you both inwardly and outwardly. God judges man on far more than just external behavior. In comparison between one and another, he judges us according to the truth. Do you see that here? That's what Paul says. Look at what he says. But we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. What does he mean by that? Well, first of all, God's judgment, unlike human judgment, is always according to the truth. 
God's judgment is always in accordance with the facts of the case. He's God. He shows no impartiality. He always condemns the guilty. And he always acquits the innocent. His judgment is always right and it is always perfectly just. We cannot say the same about human judgment. It is very easily called into question. Man is certainly fallible and so are his judgments. And we've seen that happen again and again in our own courts of law. The innocent are not always acquitted. And sometimes the guilty go free. But the judgment of God is perfect. And it cannot ever be called into question. The unrighteous, which Paul is making clear here, encompasses all of mankind. The unrighteous must be made righteous. Or they must be condemned because of their unrighteousness. God judges the whole man. Not just his behavior, but his heart. And the bad news is, beloved, that we cannot hide the condition of our heart, even through apparently good behavior. God judges according to the truth. And it's the whole truth. And we know it. Paul says our knowledge of it is indicated in our judgment of God's wrath, rightly falling upon outward wickedness. We know right from wrong. We know enough to know that God is right and that God is just to condemn wrong. And Paul says, do not be so foolish as to think that God limits right and wrong to mere outward behavior. Even as you stand up for your right to curse those who are outwardly wicked, you, have, you had better see that your own heart is measured by God's perfect standard alone. And that apart from the grace of God, it will always be found to be wanting. Do you believe that? Is that hard for you to accept? It is wanting. If you are condemning outward behavior that you yourself are involved in at any level. Knowing something is wrong will not spare us from condemnation. Our problem is far greater than just the symptoms of the disease. We need a complete cleansing from the disease itself, which brings about the symptoms. If I were to treat you for a disease, and I focused all of my time, all of my energy, all of my effort on clearing up just one symptom, your problem might be alleviated for a moment, but it's not gone. The disease must be treated. And Paul says the bad news is that every single one of us have that disease. We are all unrighteous. There is none righteous, no, not one, Paul will say later in this letter. Simply having the truth, knowing the truth will not spare us condemnation. Unrighteous people must have the righteousness of another imputed to them. Charged to their account. The righteousness of Jesus Christ must be given to us as our covering, our clothing for all of eternity. 
without it. We need to understand that we are all subject to the just and righteous judgment of Almighty God. And the bad news is that apart from Jesus Christ, Paul says that that judgment of God is inescapable. That's the final thing I want for us to consider in this text tonight. There is no way to elude or evade the judgment of God. We hear it and we think, well, of course, that sounds obvious, right? We say, well, of course we cannot escape the judgment of God. I mean, after all, if God is truly God, where could we ever hide from his searching gaze? He's God. Paul is saying this to us. You are inexcusable who judge sin in others and think that you can get away with putting a mask of morality and keep God's penetrating eye from the true condition of your own heart. God has already outed us in His Word. And any attempt to cover the truth is the very height of foolishness. It may be obvious, beloved, but how easily we fall into this very thing. We look at our human track record and we think, well, this certainly ought to please God, right? I mean, I'm here listening to Steve drone on another week. No one can bring an accusation against me for not serving in the church. I'm willing. I do my part. To add my thoughts, I share my time. I've stayed faithful to my spouse. Pray with my kids. I work. I support my family. My kids are well-behaved, cleaned up, and all successful. I use good, clean, acceptable language. I'm well thought of in this community. I try my hardest not to shake my fist at God when I disagree with Him, at least not publicly. I hate the sin that I see in my society. In fact... I hate seeing the sin of the guy sitting at the very end of my pew. If only he could get his act together. If only he were a little more like me. Is he blind? Beloved, do you see how easily we fall prey to this? It's not that Paul is saying that we are not to judge right and wrong behavior here. Many have tried to make that case here in this text. That this is a call for blanket tolerance and acceptance of any and all opinions and lifestyles. Nonsense. That's not what he's saying. Paul is simply and clearly saying that we ought to start our judgment at home. In fact, he's saying that we must. We ought to see beyond our own well-crafted masks. We ought not be so ready to condemn in others outward behavior that we have been able to hide in our own lives. Because the truth is, we're all guilty. Judgment is inescapable if left to our own devices. Hell will be a reality for all who live in open wickedness, as well as for those who trust in their ability to simply refrain from it. 
And it's bad news, isn't it? What Paul is driving home here is not just that God will judge, but that God will judge every man, woman, and child that has not acknowledged their inability to flee from the sin that so easily ensnares us apart from His grace. God will judge those who have denied their sin and not fled to Jesus Christ for their only refuge. You are without excuse if you are content in this life to see sin in others and deny it in yourself. And there's no escape. Do you see the level of irony here? The only way for you to truly escape the judgment of God is for you to accept the judgment of God. You must embrace the judgment of God against your own heart as right and just and fitting and necessary. And you must say, yes, Lord, I too have fallen far short of the glory of God in my life. Yes, Lord, you are right about me. Yes, Lord, they do not even know the half. I deserve condemnation. I have earned hell. There's nothing good in me. And because of it, Father, I will run to your Son, Jesus Christ. I will trust in his perfect righteousness because it's the only righteousness that I can have. I will trust in his ability. I will trust in his power, his dominion on the earth. I will fall on my face and worship him for doing for me what I could never do for myself. I will live my life in joyful gratitude upon the earth, even as I long for the glory of heaven where I get to be where the Lord is. See, beloved, that's faith. Faith is not keeping a stiff upper lip and seeing to it that you try a little bit harder than your neighbor did. If that is what saves, then Jesus was wrong in his condemnation of the Pharisees. He was wrong. They did it better than most. Faith is acknowledging that there's no good thing in you. You know because God has told you as much in His Word. And even though you deserve hell, God in His mercy so condescended that He put on flesh. He lived blamelessly in the eyes of the law. He willingly gave up His own life to pay your debt. And the glory is rightly his. Faith is content in that. It does not seek its own glory among men. It does not seek to distinguish itself from another in terms of ability or mere behavior. It trusts that everything we could ever need or dream of has been given to us in Jesus Christ and it is much more than just enough. Do you see it, beloved? We once were condemned, and now in Jesus we have been made the family of God, and we have been freed from our own desperate corruption. Our rags have been traded in for robes of Christ's righteousness. 
We have been changed in Jesus Christ from rebels and insurrectionists to the sons and the daughters of the Most High God. And when we see that truth, it changes us. We ought to lay aside our critical spirits and seek to tell everyone about Jesus. Compassion should fill our hearts because we have seen that we ourselves really are the chief sinners. Beloved, will you listen to the Apostle Paul? Your mask is not good enough to fool God. Don't be those who have all the appearance of godliness with absolutely none of its power. Let your joy be evident to all and let your light so shine before men as you point all men to Jesus Christ and away from the wretch that in his mercy he so graciously saved. Apart from him, beloved, there is no escape, but in him is absolute eternal freedom. Ask yourself, what are you standing on tonight? Let it be nothing less than the rock of Jesus Christ, because indeed all other ground is sinking sand. Amen? Let's pray.